Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website, at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back author Michael Azarad to discuss a new, expanded edition of his classic biography, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we have a special treat. Our friend of the show, Michael Azarad, is returning to discuss his new expanded edition of Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. This is a new edition called The Amplified Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana, and it is a tome. Michael, tell us about the new edition and welcome to the show. Uh, uh, thank you, Nate. Uh, it's great to be back. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an annotated edition of Come As You Are, which was... Uh, a biography of Nirvana that I uh, published in 1993. And it's Come As You Are was the only book that was uh, written with the cooperation of the entire band. So I interviewed uh, Kurt Cobain for it and Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic and a lot of other people. So it's kind of a, a time capsule because it was written, you know, not just while the band existed, but, you know, during some fairly turbulent uh, times in their existence, although probably a lot of their times were turbulent. But um, but it is a kind of a time capsule. And um, I found that, uh, you know, coming back to it, there was a lot to say. So I said it. And you said it well. It's, um, you know, as a Gen Xer who was hanging on Nirvana's every action at the time, and now I'm, you know, older and hopefully wiser, you know, it's pretty poignant to look back at these times and Cobain in particular is, you know, 27 seems so young from the perspective of your mid fifties. And, mm. um, it's, it's a real treasure, I think, to get your perspective on it with 30 years of experience. But the big question I have, and I want to get your insight on this is why 
was it that Kurt Cobain and Nirvana became and remained the icon at the forefront of the last rock revolution that had massive cultural impact? Well, um, you know, to, to pick, you know, start off with two, you know, kind of shallow uh, <laughs> um, uh, points. One is that they simply had the first biggest hit song with Smells Like Teen Spirit. That was, you know, kind of the opening volley in this whole alternative rock revolution that signified um, a new generation of uh, of kids, you know, coming up and taking control of uh, eventually of um, of culture. So there was that. Um, <clears throat> it's, their lead singer was good looking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that helps. Um, yeah. But, on a, you know, on a deeper level, Kurt hooked himself into the moment and and the way people were feeling uh, by speaking out about things like homophobia, sexism, racism at a time when very few celebrities talked about those things. And it's it's kind of hard to imagine today. But in, you know, 1991, 1992, a lot of a lot of rock stars and other celebrities simply didn't take those things on. It was just not done. So, uh, you know, Kurt was kind of a visionary, but by doing so, he also, you know, tethered himself to some really big, you know, streams of, of thought and, and movements in our culture. Um, oh, well, also, uh, he and Courtney wound up appearing in non-music media. So that put them on the mainstream radar, which was not like a lot of other uh, of Kurt's peers. Most of them, you know, stayed in the rock mags. But when you start hitting the mainstream, then people who are outside of the culture that you're from start to recognize you and you become a, you know, a symbol. Um, uh, Kurt's personal story, um, divorce, you know, riddle and, um, you know, uh, being a pothead, you know, as a teenager and all kinds of stuff connected with a lot of the audience you know, divorce was skyrocketing. Latchkey kids, you know, were a, a really big deal in the 90s. And and I think that's, you know, a lot of young people still connect with those feelings. But but also he just made and, and but he converted that into music somehow. You know, he alchemized these feelings into great songs that had this ineffable quality that the best music has. And a lot of times when you get to the ineffable level, um, your music uh, lasts and it really resonates with um, large groups of people. Yeah, it really has. And it's been very interesting to me to see Nirvana's legs just stay under him and particularly his influence on hip hop groups. I mean, a lot of them were contemporaries of his, but like Dr. Dre says, you know, when I work out, I listen to Nirvana, uh, you wow. know, and, and mm. tons of of younger rappers. We did a series on emo rappers and all three of the guys uh, we talked about, Little Peep, um, Extension, and, uh, and I'm blanking on the, who the third one was, but they 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 all cited Nirvana as a big influence. So it's it's been 
very interesting to me, and especially as a parent of Zoomer and Alpha generation kids, to to see that Nirvana still has cultural currency with with these new generations in a way that none of their contemporaries really seem to do. And and your point about the ma- major media, mainstream media. I mean, obviously, there's the Vanity Fair uh, cover story that Kurt and his wife Courtney Love of the band Hole. Um, you know, it, I, that was kind of a hit piece, and it and it and it kind of was the genesis of your book. Can you tell us how one thing led to the other? Uh, well, it, it, I mean, it kind of started when um, I did a Rolling Stone cover story on Nirvana in early 1992. And that was the one with the famous uh, Mark Seliger photograph of Kurt wearing a T-shirt that said corporate magazines still suck. And um I, uh, you know, not much was known about Kurt at the time. Uh, all, you know, all I really knew was that, you know, he he was that guy who sang Smells Like Teen Spirit and smashed his guitars and um, and might be a heroin addict. And, and we, he was from, you know, S- Seattle or the Seattle area and a few other miscellaneous things, but not much was known about him. And I approached this assignment with a little bit of trepidation, um, and not just because it was only my second uh, Rolling Stone cover story, which was a, a big deal back then. But um, you know, I was flying out to Los Angeles and talking to this guy who might be a heroin addict, and I'd never met a heroin addict before. <laughs> and I finally, I flew out there, knocked on the door. This uh, Courtney Love person opens the door and offers me a plate of grapes and uh, gestures me down this short hallway to where Kurt was. Uh, uh, I w- was going to do the interview with Kurt and I walked down this short hallway and opened the door and there's Kurt lying in bed with his back uh, to the wall and his feet sticking out and they were painted. His toenails were painted kind of this cherry red color. And um, and he says, oh, hi. And in that second, I said, I thought, I know this guy. I, I oh. You know, I, I'm and I felt, um, oh, I get it now. You know, he's just channeling, you know, this this familiar feeling. I, I, I knew guys like him in high school. I, I kind of was a guy like him in high school. And I guarantee you that I, I would say literally tens of millions of other of other people would have had the same feeling had they met him. <laughs> At any rate, <clears throat> we connected. Uh, we had a great interview. Um, it turned out, you know, we had a lot in common, uh, even though, you know, I was from the East Coast, you know, college boy and New York type, you know, guy. And uh, he was a from rural Washington State and hadn't graduated high school. But we had a lot in common. And again, I would say probably literally tens of millions of other people would have had the same experience with him. But um, we had a good chat. And then that was early 92. And then I, I bumped into him at the Reading Festival that summer. And uh, we chatted at the bar in this crowded bar scene <laughs> um, that is uh, happens at Reading. And uh, we kind of renewed the connection. And then, I don't know, a month later, got a phone call late at night uh, from Courtney Love. And she, she said, uh, would you want to write a biography of Nirvana? And I said, sure, but can I talk to Kurt about it? And she said, sure. And she passed the phone to Kurt and we talked and, uh, you know, and I said, um, you know, I I don't want this to be um, 
an authorized biography. And he was really savvy. He'd done, I think he'd done his homework on these things. And he said, oh, no, no, that would be two guns and roses. <laughs> and he, he knew that authorized means that the, um, the subject has basically final cut over the manuscript. And he understood that that would compromise the credibility of the book. And, um, and so uh, he said, you know, just tell the truth and that will be better than anything that's been written about me. And at the time, I was kind of aware of the, this custody battle, you know, that was kind of sparked by the Vanity Fair story. Um, I, frankly, I, that's that kind of thing just didn't interest me. It just seemed gossipy. I'm just I'm in, I'm just into the music man. <laughs> so I was kind of aware of it, but not really. But as, as it turned out, they wanted the, the whole point of the book was simply um to have a section in it where the, they are portrayed, Kurt and Courtney were portrayed as loving parents. Um, and I only realized this later. Um, and then the rest of the book was just, you know, that was the, you know, the meat, if you will, of the book. And then the rest of it was the bread. <laughs> and fortunately, the bread uh, was super interesting. And um, I think I wound up with a pretty good book that was, a, you know, very much a product of its time. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. It's it's a classic um, rock biography. And, and it was, you know, put the marker down. But we've got to play our first song here. And this is Nirvana live in Tacoma, Washington in 1988, playing a song called Aero Zeppelin. Zeppelin, a song that can be construed kind of as a tribute to Kurt Cobain's classic rock roots, although it also sounds a lot like Gang of Four and, and Scratch Acid. So it kind of encapsulates what they were trying to do at the time. But you, you talk repeatedly in the book about how Cobain um, would kind of not actively disavow these roots, but he frequently you know, he wanted to position himself as a, a hipster kid. And you, you pinpoint this as having to do with him coming from Aberdeen, Washington, which is a very small town, remote logging community, not in the Seattle area. How much do you feel like, you know, and also, you you know, you mentioned the the corporate magazine Still Suck cover, and you talk about several times in the, in the book about the way Cobain would inject irony, you know, when he would make some rock star move, he would call himself a sellout or do some mm -hmm. kind of tongue in cheek joke. Mm -hmm. You know, explain those sort of insecurities and contradictions and how you see <laughs> Cobain as a small town kid. You know, first he goes to Olympia, where there's the whole K record scene, which, you know, was where Riot Girl came out of. And, and Kurt was hip to that stuff way before most of the country because of that experience. Then he goes to Seattle and he's trying to get in with Sub Pop and Mud Honey and everything. Explain that a little bit. And also... And I'm sorry to keep piling on more questions of this one thing, but 
it's also you know good to remind the audience that the grunge movement was already taken off big time in the underground by the time Cobain comes to Seattle. I mean, Mudhoney and Tad and Soundgarden were really getting national attention in the underground. And it's not like grunge just came out of nowhere when Teen Spirit came out. It was part of a building process that you documented brilliantly in your book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. So um, respond to any of those points you want to throw back at me. <laughs> okay. Um uh, first of all, I mean, maybe we should establish for uh, the listener that uh, this new The Amplified Comes You Are is an annotated book. So it's the original book with annotations, um, a sort of, um, you know, director's commentary where I interject um, comments literally in between the paragraphs of the original book Um so I'm kind of looking back at the book. I'm commenting on it with, you know, 30 years of uh, perspective and I, I correct things. I, I amplify things. Um, I flesh things out and it's um, uh, partly uh, for, for people who lived through that time and are, would love to kind of try to make sense of a, a very, you know, powerful era of their life. But also there are, younger people who were born, you know, after Nirvana uh, was gone, who uh, would really love to know, you know, just the cultural, musical, even political context of Nirvana. So that, um, you know, that that's what this book is. And I basically wrote, it's, it's, a, it's a second book's worth of annotations, which I actually um, put into uh, one uh, freestanding piece called the amplifications, uh, and that's the ebook version and the audiobook version. So just to you know, just to make clear about what we're talking about here. Now, uh, as far as Aberdeen, you know, Krist Novoselic um, started out life in Southern California, I think Compton, and um, <clears throat> he uh, so he got some pretty cool radio stations, and he was listening to you know, Aerosmith and, you know, Kiss and I don't know, probably Deep Purple or something, you know, like hard rock, you know, from the 70s as a, as a kid. And then he moves to Aberdeen, maybe he's like 10 years old and he's this musical sophisticate and all they get in um, Aberdeen is top 40. And he, he told me about this funny situation where he would ride on the school bus and someone would always be playing on their little transistor radio uh, Kenny Rogers um, hit Coward of the County and how disgusted he was. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a love-hate relationship with that song that I've had to listen to non-consensually many times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so so he was this sophisticate coming from, you know, Southern California, uh, you know, Los Angeles, basically, to rural Aberdeen. And I, I think he, you know, he, he was a little bit, more sophisticated than Aberdeen, which is uh, a beautiful, but, you know, provincial uh, place. And then Kurt um, came from Aberdeen, but he had, you know, he was an artist and he, a really bright kid. And he wanted to uh, expand his horizons. He wanted to, you know, have his, you know, fill out his mind with, all the stuff that he realized it was capable of receiving and that was not going to happen in Aberdeen. Um, so, um, 
you know, he he left and he went to Olympia and he met all these kids from the Evergreen State College, which is a pretty fancy school um, made up of, I would say, largely affluent people, um, many from around the country. So he got exposed to a lot of different ideas and different, slightly different cultures and things like that. And um, and he started to fill up his mind with new ideas and, uh, you know, political ideas, uh, ideas about uh, feminism and art, all kinds of things. And that was a huge growth period for him. And I talk a lot about that in the Amplified Come As You Are, because it's that was a really, really formative time. He's soaking up all these ideas and he, he crossed paths, crossed paths with um, the right girl uh, people. And he got, you know, that's where a lot of his feminism comes from is um, his interactions with, you know, brilliant people like Kathleen Hanna and um, Toby Vale, who was his girlfriend for a while. And yeah, that was a really formative time. So um, Kurt was, you know, trying to get out of Aberdeen, but he was also trying to get Aberdeen out of him. <laughs> he was very aware <laughs> of being provincial. And, uh, for instance, um, you know, heavy metal was, you know, considered pretty provincial, um, not something that college kids from Evergreen listened to. So even though he was really into metal, like Iron Maiden and Led Zeppelin and stuff when he was a teen, um, he let that go. He kind of, you know, deleted it from his, uh, his record, <laughs> um, and, um, and threw himself fully into, you know, po American post-punk, English post-punk, um, and then the K record scene coming out of Olympia. Yeah, and and but he couldn't get that those heavy metal roots out of his music, and I think that was a big part of their appeal, uh, that, that the whole grunge movement. But let's go ahead and hear our second song, and this is the last single that Nirvana put out on Sub Pop. It's a song called Sliver, and this is a live version from the Paramount in Seattle from 1991. Nirvana's Sliver, uh, live from the Paramount in Seattle in 1991. And that's, to me, a classic example, because in my world, that was a monster hit. That was, you know, right up there with what Dinosaur Jr. was putting out around that same time. I think, uh, you know, The Wagon jumps to mind or their cover of The Cure's uh, Kiss Me. You know, I can't remember the name of The Cure song. But anyway, the, you know, in the underground scene, this was a big statement. It was such a classic Gen X childhood divorce story. But then it you know, they rapidly move on. And, and you talk several times about how you, you know, in the annotation and the expanded version, how you realize that you were kind of manipulated by Cobain. And, you know, virtually everything the guy ever wrote down has been published at this point, it seems like, including his diaries. And when you read those diaries, you see, wow, this guy really understood the music business at, at, at a high level. And he planned out a lot of his career long in advance in a way that, 
you know, made me as somebody who thought they wanted to be a rock star when I was a teenager. I was like, wow, there's a reason this guy became a rock star. And I didn't, you know, like he really understood the game. When did you realize you were dealing with somebody who was not only an artistic genius, but also kind of a savant of the industry? Hmm. I think just in the course of, of speaking with him, he um, he, he was, a, you know, he's a pretty good interview. He understood, you know, what uh, an interviewer wants. And, um, you know, he would sort of give away, you know, um, the, the fact that he was he read a lot of uh, music journalism, even though he, um, you know, professed to, uh, you know, hate it. But he certainly, Nick, when we first met, he absolutely knew who I was because I had written a lot about, especially about, you know, alternative rock and punk rock and indie rock for Rolling Stone leading up to that story. And, um, you know, the only way he would know that would have been to actually read Rolling Stone, which he disavowed. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, he couldn't be seen to, to be a student of that kind of thing because it was, you know, not cool. Uh, but Kurt, you know, Kurt understood that a band is, um, a, you know, it's not just the music, it's, it's the album covers, it's their haircuts, it's their clothes. It's, it's the, the way their music is recorded. It's what they say in interviews. It's, it's all that, all those things are their videos, obviously all those things are you know, manifestations of a, a singular uh, sensibility. And he, he got that. And I think that was because simply because he did read a lot of music journalism and a lot of his, you know, his first favorite bands were, you know, the Beatles and Queen and the Cars. These, you know, those are all bands that were very aware of all those things of how they came across the, their look and their sound and things like that. And that's those are uh, formative for him, even though he later on uh, embraced bands that uh, didn't embrace, um, you know, such, uh, you know, uh, meticulous uh, image control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in a way they did. I mean, Daniel Johnson with his iconography of his drawings, you know, and the Vaselines, I mean, certainly had an ethos that came across, but you had to search these things out and find them. And and Cobain kind of becomes a Pied Piper to alternative rock by doing things like wearing a Daniel Johnson t-shirt or doing covers of Vaseline songs and, you know, brought that stuff to a much bigger audience or having the Meat Puppets um, come in and play two songs, backing him up um, mm. as he covered two of their songs on the the, the final live uh, acoustic uh, MTV Unplugged appearance. And, you know, so he was this popularizer of the underground in a big way. But I want to talk about the other members of the band now or get you to talk about them. The core of the band is obviously this partnership between Kurt Cobain and Christopher Selleck, the bass player. And, you know, it's we pay so much attention to Cobain because he's the guitar player, he's the lead singer, he's the songwriter. What did Novoselic bring to this partnership and why was he so vital to their success? That um, is one of the big, you know, motifs of the Amplified Come As You Are. It's something I really wanted to get across is, is how crucial Chris was to, um, to Nirvana. Um, I mean, first of all, Chris was you know, uh, was Kurt's first fan, really, you know, they, they, 
um, Kurt gave him a, a demo tape and Chris thought it was good and thought, uh, hey, I'll play in a band with this guy. That's, you know, he's really, you know, cast his chips in with with Kurt right at the beginning. So he was a believer. And I think that was incredibly helpful to Kurt. Um, Chris is a really, you know, he he, he certainly had his goofy and beyond uh, moments, uh, but he's also a very together, uh, you know, mature, you know, high emotional IQ type person. And he did a lot of the management of the band early on, just organizational stuff, just maybe, you know, tour managing duties and things like that. Um, uh, I remember um, I visited him at his home in Seattle while he's doing the original Come As You Are, and he had a whole little office set up just to deal with Nirvana stuff. And there was a I, mean, I think there was a little primitive computer and a, a fax machine and he had filing cabinets and he, he was he did that stuff for the band. And Kurt certainly wasn't going to do that. So uh, I know they had a little a little bit of a management at that, you know, early on before they went to Gold Mountain. But basically, you know, it was Chris doing kind of the administrative work. And uh, but Chris also. um uh, he, he would help patch together Kurt's guitars in the van between, you know, uh, uh, between shows. They'd be driving down the highway and they're, they'd, they'd be in the back of the van soldering things and gluing. And Chris, you know, help with that. Sometimes Kurt would literally forget how a song went on stage. Um, uh, Chris would show him <laughs> like right in the <laughs> middle of the show, sometimes in front of tens of tens of thousands of people. Um there was this infamous incident at Trees Lounge in Dallas when Kurt um, uh, hit a bouncer with his guitar. And the bouncer, uh, I think, quite understandably, went nuts on Kurt. And um, Chris was the one who jumped in and separated them. And there's just all kinds of things like that. Chris was just incredibly useful. And he he was he helped calm Kurt down when Kurt got upset. Um, Chris was the intermediary often between uh, Kurt and um, what Kurt used to call the adults, the the you know execs in in management and label and things like that who were who, you know worked with the band. So he was the sort of the band's ambassador because he's such a personable fellow. So and then. You know, there is the musical angle. He's a great bass player. He comes up with the coolest parts, with the most beautiful tone. And he's all he was also great on stage. He was really fun to watch. So, um, you know, he was he did a lot of things that were visible, but even more, I think, that were invisible and absolutely crucial to the continued existence and eventual success uh, of the band absolutely and let's take a quick sponsor break and when we come back i want to talk about the other pieces of the band the the revolving drummer chair that ultimately landed on dave grohl and then uh kurt uh the the fourth guitar player that kurt cobain sometimes tried to uh, second guitar player fourth member of the band that kurt cobain uh tried to add two different times to the band but let's take our sponsor break and come come right back Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And yeah, so tell us about the second piece of the of the trio which is or the third piece the final the final capstone it took nirvana quite a while to find a drummer that fit and i i I, i'm remiss in that i haven't introduced the melvins into the story the super ultra legendary influential proto grunge band or maybe the first grunge band that, that came from aberdeen and are still out there today, you know, touring and, and Buzz Osborne really does look like the winner in all this, you know, as you see, not just Kurt fall by the wayside, but, and I mean, so many tragedies in this scene, but, you know, Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone and Lane Staley of Alice in Chains. And then the real kick in, you know, Scott Whelan of Stowe Temple Pilots that Kurt probably wouldn't want to be associated with, but he, he was. Uh, and, and the real kick in the teeth for me was Chris Cornell, you know, pretty late in life, uh, killing himself apparently um uh, well i got on a tangent tangent there but and it's such a heavy thing but but the melvin's drummer dale crover is this absolutely legendary king drummer and he's their first drummer they borrowed him at, and you know played with him many times they also played with dan peterson mud honey and then uh tell us about their their quest for a drummer and chad channing who was like almost but not quite the right guy and then dave grohl or why he was the right guy mm. um yeah they did go through a, a bunch of drummers um uh dale crover um is 
an incredibly imaginative, original musician. And it's kind of freaky that someone like him and Buzz all came from roughly the same place <laughs> that Kurt and Chris uh, did. It's, that's kind of miraculous. Um, you know, uh, the cliche would be there must be something in the water. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think I, actually I, there's probably are brilliant people everywhere. Uh, it's just a matter of, um, you know, the right um, circumstances bringing them together and the right circumstances brought together Dale Crover and Buzz Osborne and Chris and Kurt. And Dale Crover is, a, you know, he's one of the great rock drummers. He's just a brilliant player, uh, not just an excellent drummer, but an excellent you know, musician. He also has a lot of, um, you know, self-discipline. He's a disciplined musician. He works at it. And it was, that was probably a good influence on, uh, on Kurt and Chris uh, too. So, I, you know, uh, you know, I, th I think it was Nick Lowe or someone once said, you know, you're only as good as your drummer. Yeah. And, you know, if your drummer is Dale Crover, then you're probably going to be pretty damn good. No doubt. But he was never really in the band, right? He was just kind of borrowed or helping out here and there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he played on some demos and he plays on a couple of <laughs> some cuts on uh, Bleach and he played a few dates on a tour in 1990. Uh, but, you know, he was, he was seriously, you know, very big influence, uh, not just musically, but uh, otherwise uh, on Nirvana, for sure. Um, but there's also, you know, Aaron Burkhard, um, who I think he was from Aberdeen. And yeah, um, glad you brought him up. Yeah. And and he was just, you know, a local guy who had, you know, a, a lot of chops and loved to play drums and was super enthusiastic about, um, you know, playing loud rock music and again you know w when you have you know if you're a songwriter and you're leading a band and there's someone who's a pretty good player and is enthusiastic about your work that's a real shot in the arm that's you know that's like before you even play out and you hear applause for your work if there's simply someone who wants to take the time to to play your music with you and and you know add their own little flair to it you know, that's an incredible feeling. And um, Aaron Burkhardt fell by the wayside. And then they got Dave Foster, who, you know, from the evidence is even better drummer than Aaron Burkhardt. And again, that just kind of kicked up um, uh, Nirvana's game. They kept they were playing with really good musicians and, um, you know, the rising tide that, you know, floats all boats uh, syndrome happened and. They just kept working at it. And Dave Foster uh, eventually washed out and they found this guy, Chad Channing, this kind of, um, you know, pixie-ish kind of guy who lived on, uh, I think it was Bainbridge Island um, across the bay from Seattle. And Chad, um, aside from being an incredibly sweet man, was incredibly dedicated to the band uh, a musician he could play other instruments so he was you know quite musical he understood how to write songs and what songs needed uh from any instrument particularly the drums and he was an inventive player he he played in what dave Grohl uh called a drunken style he did have this kind of sloshy kind of vibe that was nice and grungy 
and gave the band a, a distinctive uh, rhythmic, you know, undertow. So, uh, and he recorded most of Bleach with them and did a whole bunch of touring and and um, helped put Nirvana on the map. And um, eventually, um, Kurt and Chris saw a guy from Washington, D.C., who, uh, who had just uh, left a uh, DC area band called scream. He saw, well, actually he saw the, him play with scream at uh, the I beam in San Francisco. And they thought like, wow, this guy is great. I wish he was our drummer. And then, um, and that was Dave Grohl. And uh, I don't know, like a month later or something like that. I can't remember now. Uh, uh, Dave is suddenly out of scream and I think scream had solved and he was looking for a new band and their mutual friend, uh, Buzz Osborne, uh, hooked them up. And that's when Dave joined the band. Dave, again, um, uh, uh, was and still is, of course, a, a songwriter. So again, understands what uh, what kind of drumming a song best requires. So there was that. He He was a very busy player in a lot of his previous bands, but somehow figured out that he had to simplify his playing with Nirvana. And he played just these impeccable parts. Some of them um, copied from um, the demos that Chad Channing had recorded. And uh, David uh, gave credit to Chad for that at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony some years ago. But Dave played in a very economical but musical and uh you know hard-hitting way that just just shot the music into the stratosphere and that had that had coincided with kurt finally jettisoning jettisoning a lot of the kind of the more gnarly you know proggy metal and um weird american post-punk influences that bleach had, had had and he was simplifying it making it maybe more uh, early Beatles-esque or something. And Dave sensed that and played in a simpler mode, and it, it just um, exploded. It sure did. And, and Grohl, obviously, is a consummate rock biz professional. Is, you know, he's practically become the second Bono appearing in all the hmm. documentaries ever made and, and hmm. hanging out with Paul McCartney and stuff. But let's hear our next song. And then when we come back, I want to I talk about um, their uh, attempts at a second guitarist a little bit, but then get into Courtney Love and Heroin. And this is, uh, this is Endless Nameless, live at the Paramount in Seattle in 1991. was endless nameless the bonus track off the bleach uh, not the bleach the nevermind cd that you know if you if you left it playing for a long time then suddenly this squalling burst of noise with the with the 
tasty song in the middle of it would would erupt and it was it was a pretty fun feature of cds in that era but this was a live performance of that and so when i first uh heard of nirvana uh, it was 87 or 88 and the weird thing was i was living in austin and my friends in lubbock texas were hipper to the grunge scene than we were in austin and i had to go to lubbock to get a copy of bleach because sound exchange the legendary austin record store didn't have it yet um and you know, you look at the credits of that, and it's a four-piece band. It says Jason Everman played guitar, and then later on, he he was the bass player for Soundgarden briefly, but he didn't play on Bleach, right? No, um, no. Uh, uh, Everman uh, got a credit in Bleach, I think, basically because he bankrolled the recording of the album do it. to the tune of six hundred six dollars and seventeen cents. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a a figure actually I I first uncovered. Um, I can't remember if it was for the Rolling Stone piece or for um, Come As You Are, but um, it's just funny when uh, whenever I see that figure quoted in a story or a book somewhere, I know that they got it from me. <laughs> that was my original research. That extra six dollars and seventeen cents is to give away. <laughs> for sure and and then at the end of the band though they add you know for the for the mtv unplugged pat smear the legendary uh, guitar player from the germs the proto hardcore band from la fronted by darby crash joins up why was cobain consistently looking for a second guitar player um uh, kurt looked for a second guitar player to you know fatten up the sound but also you know you know as he said you know so readily and so often he wasn't that great of a musician um you know technically speaking so he found it difficult to sing and play guitar at the same time and he very wisely prioritized um <clears throat> singing well over playing guitar well but that meant that his guitar playing could be you know not super solid and he was he was a perfectionist. And actually, I can tell you something about that in a second. But so it, even though the music sounded scrappy, he was a perfectionist and he wanted he understood rock music as, you know, has a, like a solid, you know, rhythmic, you know, wallop to it. And, you know, quite certainly Chris Novoselic and and Dave Grohl were a, a walloping rhythm section. But th that didn't quite cut it. You need a, you know, a guitar to to lock in with the rhythm section to, for, for it to have a really immense impact. So he want, you know, Kurt wanted a rhythm guitarist or a second guitarist at least. And at first it was Jason Everman. Um, Everman, you know, lasted for a while, but he was, J Jason Everman was at the time anyway, like really into kind of proggy metal, the kind of exactly the kind of thing that Kurt was most determinedly trying to leave behind and erase, you know, from his uh, curriculum vitae. <laughs> so, um, uh, so Jason Everman only lasted so long and never actually played on a record. And then, you know, people said, hey, you know, you guys sound good as a three piece, just keep it that way. And then, uh, you know, once Nirvana got really popular, Kurt really wanted to have a, a strong stage presentation and they he wanted to get a, a really good rhythm guitar player. I think it was Courtney uh, Love who suggested her old friend Pat Smear, who had been in, you know, this 
OG uh, Los Angeles punk band called the Germs. And you you know you don't get much more indie cred you know than the Germs. Yeah. So uh, and the Germs were pretty you know uh, rough and tumble uh, to say the uh, least. band. Yeah, but in the meantime, Pat had become a really great rhythm guitar player. He's like you know he's like a Oh, I hate to make comparisons like this, but he's like like the Keith Richards of you know of grunge. You know, he's like he's got a really great solid rhythmic sense, and he just locked in at, uh, with Chris and Dave, and that's all he had to do. He didn't have to sing; he just had to lock in and provide that 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 rhythmic impact that that Kurt wanted, and and to fill in all the the, the sonic uh, gaps that um you get with only one guitar, and Pat was great and another thing that pat added was that he was just always had a ball on stage <laughs> and i know that that really lifted kurt's spirits even you know when things were they having a rough show or things were happening you know things that were rough off stage kurt could look over at pat and pat would just be beaming with joy for the the fun of playing rock music with a great band and again that's you know that's not something uh, musical, but it's something that's incredibly priceless, and um, I think uh, certainly heightened uh, Kurt's enjoyment of being in a rock band. Definitely, and and by all accounts, Pat Smear is also just a real sweetheart of a human being too, and, and yeah, added a lot to the dynamics of the band. And let's hear our last song, and when we come back. We'll talk about uh, Courtney Love and and heroin. Um, but this is this is Frances Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. This is a live version from Oakland in 1993. This is a song off the In Utero, the final album, Nirvana. Nirvana doing a live version of Francis Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle from live in Oakland, 1993. Before we introduce Courtney Love, who was Francis Farmer and why was Kurt Cobain so fascinated with her? Why did he identify with her so much? Uh, Francis Farmer was uh, an actress from the 1940s, very talented uh, and intelligent and strong willed uh, woman who. Um, <clears throat> started to butt heads with uh, directors and other people in the movie business and was subsequently, you know, kind of shunned and marginalized and, um, uh, and, you know, found herself in dire straits and became an alcoholic and did all kinds of drugs and um, eventually um, was committed to an asylum by her mother. And after she got out, she became a, uh, a room cleaner in a, a hotel in Seattle and then eventually kind of picked herself up and um, became a host of a Seattle area TV show. So, you know, she was a very, uh, she was a, you know, a strong, uh, tempestuous woman. <laughs> 
And um, I think uh, Kurt uh, related to her and for a couple of reasons. One was just, um, um, you know, that that idea that um, that uh, the establishment does not suffer rebels very well, and and he kind of related that with his experience with um, you know the Vanity Fair story and uh, being marginalized as a as a heroin addict and a rebel against uh, society. <laughs> and then, um, and I'm sure he uh, saw the analogy of Francis Farmer with another strong-willed, tempestuous woman in his life, namely Courtney Love. Absolutely. And, and you know, the Nirvana story arc is kind of compressed because no sooner do they put out Nevermind, Teen Spirit starts to take off, they're playing Saturday Night Live, but Cobain pulls this late era Beatles move and takes up with Courtney Love, who's this lightning rod figure. I have immense respect for Courtney Love for her work with Hole. I think she's a great songwriter, great performer in her own right. But at this point, she's not famous for that. She hasn't really recorded any. She doesn't really record any of her main accomplishments until after Cobain kills himself. But they also take up heroin at the same time. You know, it's it's so much like what John Lennon did with Yoko Ono uh, towards the end of the Beatles run. How did that impact the dynamic of the band? Why did Cobain, you know, it's his stomach problems that that you know was the the the, the cover story or the alleged reason why he he got so into heroin. But it's not something the rest of the band was into, and it really put a wedge between him and Chris Novoselic, especially, but also kind of alienated uh, Dave Grohl. And it comes at the same time as they've hired you know Gold Mountain management Danny Goldberg, who's a legendary music biz figure going back to Led Zeppelin. They signed with uh, David Geffen's label, which is, you know, Buzz Osborne, Kurt's mentor, has really excoriated Kurt over the years for having picked the worst people in the music biz. And he also trashes Courtney Love in, in that context. How much of that was deliberate? How much of that spiral out of control? And but, you know, the, explain the whole Courtney Love thing. And, and, and uh, you know, do, do you view them as like a John and Yoko sort of thing or or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to, to get to. But, but how do you feel about Courtney Love and her relationship with Kurt and how it impacted the rest of Nirvana's organization in that period? And do you think their management and, you know, road crew, et cetera, et cetera, were, quote, the worst and the worst in the music biz? Mm. Well, you know, as, as I was saying before, Kurt really wanted to become less provincial. He wanted to become more cosmopolitan and cultured and plug into things because he was he, he was a sponge. He was, a, like I say, a really bright guy, a great artist, and he wanted to soak up stuff and find out about things. Um <clears throat> His first real girlfriend, Tracy Miranda, um, was a you know did photography and and some artwork and things like that. And I think that 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 kicked him up a notch in terms of um, uh, being an artist and understanding the idea of being inspired inspired by someone else. Um, they eventually broke up. Kurt, uh, for a time, saw Toby Vale, who was had already, you know, at the age of, I don't know, 18 or something like that, was already, or she's 20, but since her teens had been an intrinsic part of the American punk rock community, 
um, and knew about all kinds of music and feminism and all kinds of stuff like that. So now he's met someone else, a new girlfriend who's enriching his mind with all these ideas. And again, he's soaking it up. He's a sponge. He wants more and more and more. And then he meets Courtney Love, who is a you know very sophisticated, highly cultured, extremely intelligent um, person. And he craved that. And she, I'm sure she turned him on to all kinds of literature and, you know, Leonard Cohen and all kinds of painters and other kinds of music and things like that. So I think that was, um, you know, that was really exciting and enriching for Kurt. And I think that was a really big part of uh, his attraction for her. I mean, there are other, you know, just, you know, sheer physical attraction, uh, which they made, you know, pretty clear <laughs> on several occasions. Um, so, but, you know, that was all bound up in this, you know, our intellectual, artistic, you know, creative uh, back and forth between them. And as far as the management, well, uh, on point of fact, you know, um, Danny Goldberg, um, he was the principal of uh, Gold Mountain Management, but the person who really did the, the, really the managing was a guy named John Silva, at Gold Mountain, and uh, he had managed, I think, House of Freaks and a couple other bands. Maybe was on the verge of, or he just started maybe with managing Sonic Youth. So he was like a, uh, a indie guy, and he was familiar with the territory. But he was also a you know very tough um, negotiator, and um, I, which I think uh, really stood. Uh, in good standing, uh, it was very good for Nirvana because, um, you know, Nirvana, they were still provincial guys and they didn't really know too much about the music biz. They had not much experience in the mainstream. And John Silva was a very smart, you know, aggressive manager. And that's the kind of person you want, um, in your corner when you're perhaps, uh, inexperienced and maybe a little naive. Yeah, absolutely. And towards the you know last couple of questions here, in utero seems to me to be, you know, Cobain had this knack for expressing his experiences, and up to the point of Nevermind becoming this mega success, he was a pretty typical Gen Xer. He had so many prototypical experiences, and he was able to describe these experiences in ways that millions of people could identify with. You know, hey, that's my life. Like when I heard Sliver for the first time, I, I identified it with it like you wouldn't believe. And then Smells Like Teen Spirit obviously becomes this iconic anthem. But then he goes through this really traumatic, wrenching experience of becoming world famous overnight in a way he did not expect. Like he thought he would be, you know, his his aim was to be about as successful as Sonic Youth or something like that, or he mm. said it was. Um, on the other hand, he's doing things like writing songs like Teen Spirit and, and hiring people, you know, like John Silva and Danny Goldberg and signing with Geffen. And, you know, in utero then is this very unique, it's this documentation, very powerful documentation of his very unique experience of being a rock star. How much do you think that that isolation contributed to his ultimate fate? And and I want to throw sort of a curveball at you. When I um, did an episode on Graham Parsons, it really came you know, it seems like Graham Parsons, the the kind of inventor of country rock, member of the Birds, and then Flying Burrito Brothers, 
who died very young. And it seemed like Graham Parsons was dead set on becoming a legend like Hank Williams. Like his goal was to make this body of work. He never even had a successful live band, which is really bizarre, but uh, he becomes this legend. And and after he ODs it, a little older than 27, I think. But how much do you think Cobain kind of mapped out his suicide as part of his career arc? Because I can remember at the time, Eddie Vedder seemed like he was superseding Kurt as the face of grunge and, and Pearl Jam was had surpassed Nirvana uh, in popularity by the time of Cobain's death. But as soon as Cobain dies, it was like checkmate. It was obvious that Cobain was the one who was going to be the legend. Do you think that he was considering things like that? I mean, that's such a sort of crazy thing to imagine somebody is like, I'm going to end my life as part of my rock star narrative, or do you think it was just a spiral of personal despair that had nothing to do with how he would be perceived by the world? And yet his suicide note is such a statement, you know, like, can you untangle some of those painful contradictions? Well, I, I, I don't think that um, he killed himself in order to ensure his, his legend, I think it was quite the opposite uh, or the converse. I think that he was aware that by killing himself, his his legend would uh, would increase, but I don't, that's certainly not why he did it, did it. But he was, you know, he was caught more than enough of a student of rock history to understand what the implications of that were, and you you can kind of sense that reading in between the lines of his suicide note. So, but I mean, I you know, people over the years have you know speculated uh, in print and, you know, to me about, you know, why they think Kurt Cobain killed himself. And, you know, um, he had a history of suicide, extensive history of suicide in his family. Yeah. Um, he, he was, he certainly was depressed. He had all kinds of contributing factors, like lots of classic contributing factors for suicide. And, um, you know, the fact that he was famous leads people to think that his fame was what killed him. But, you know, if it hadn't been fame, it could have been something else. It's just that's just the way his life path, you know, proceeded. That's he he happened to become famous and then killed himself. But if he had never become famous, he might have still done might still have done it. And we'd be speculating that it was something else that caused it. But yeah. I, I, I kind of think it was inevitable. And, and I, I mentioned in the Amplified Come As You Are about how so many people around him, in, including Dave Grohl and uh, uh, and even Kurt's mom knew that his days were probably quite numbered. And, and you said so, that too, that that was yeah. one of your first impressions on meeting him. Yep. Yep. And, uh, yeah. That's, you know, I, yeah, I mentioned earlier, yeah, that, um, he um uh he seemed incredibly familiar familiar to me but he also i i immediately thought oh he's one of those rock stars that dies young <laughs> and, and i and uh i you know i i i know i understand how creepy that is and uh or you know, it didn't seem creepy at the time it just seemed like well that's just the way it is um and i should enjoy this person as much as i can you know while I, and everybody should while they still can. And um, yeah. And, and, 
And time is short, so I want to ask you one last question, because to me, one of the most affecting things about the Amplified Edition was your story. It was much easier for me to identify with the survivor, the writer, the not famous person. And, and you know, you talk about how you felt kind of manipulated by Cobain, how people in his organization were probably conspiring to sabotage your work, that in the end, you did some interviews that apparently pissed him off because he went from somebody who would call you regularly or semi-regularly to never talking to you again. Like, how much did you feel like kind of a, and, and then you talk about how you went into a spiral of depression after his death and it really impacted you. How much do you feel like sort of a cork bobbing in the ocean or is it like that or is it more like, you know, I'm, I'm Kurt Cobain's Boswell, who, the Boswell, <laughs> the legendary biographer of Samuel Johnson. I mean, you know, how, how do you feel about the story? How did it impact you? Uh, well, well, it's, you know, uh, writing that book, you know, changed my life. Um, just uh, the, the popularity of the book and, um, and, and certainly the traumatic experience of uh, Kurt's death and all kinds of things like that, you know, fell out of that. Um, and, um, Wow. Um, you know, I do write about that quite a bit in the Amplified Come As You Are, and it is sort of this parallel story that I wanted to make clear, not just to, you know, to say something about myself, but to emphasize the fact that when a journalist covers a story, they're not some fly in the wall. They're not a, a potted plant. They're a human being who's also in the room and feeling things. And there, there are incidents that happen to the journalists that will never make it into the story, but actually they might remember and might make a huge impression on them for, for years um, that they, you know, just didn't get into the story because maybe it was just personal or weird or, you know, obscure or something. So, um, you know, journalism isn't, you know, heretofore anyway, uh, created by, uh, you know, a computer. It's created by human beings and human beings are, are fallible and they are emotional beings. And, um, and there's that, uh, you know, that interplay between the subject and the journalist that Janet Malcolm got into in a book called the journalist and the murderer. Um, which I thought a lot about as, as I was writing the amplified version um, where, and Janet Malcolm's point was that there's this exchange between the subject and the journalist and the subject is trying to get their story across their version of reality, which Kurt definitely was trying to do. He was trying to downplay his heroin addiction as much. He was trying to downplay his um, heavy metal addiction <laughs> and, um, and uh, and so he was trying to snow me, but I was trying to like hoodwink him into giving me lots of good stuff. <laughs> and, and so we're both, you know, the journalist and the, and the subject are playing each other. And I, the, I, I tried to, uh, you know, that was a big part of, of the Amplified Come As You Are is to make sure that people were aware of that. It's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's a two-way game. And um, Kurt certainly... Um, you know, got a lot of his game accomplished, but I, I think um, I, I got a lot of my game accomplished too. I mean, the the level of candor in Come As You Are is astonishing, and um, 
I'm, I'm not saying that that's uh, a function of my superlative interviewing skills as much as it is a product, again, of its time when bands were just a little bit less self-conscious and media savvy. And um, especially coming from a punk rock, you know, indie background um, uh, and, and a band that certainly traded and championed on uh, authenticity, realness. They wanted to tell it like it was, and they didn't want to come off like rock stars. And, and I didn't want them to be, come off like rock stars. I wanted to portray them as people who other people could relate to, which was, that was my initial feeling about them, was like, I relate to these people, and yet they make amazing art. And that was a really great uh part of what I was trying to accomplish with the Come As You Are is to show that these are ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And by extension, <clears throat> um, lots of other ordinary people could do extraordinary things if they, you know, worked hard and were, to use a favorite Kurt word, passionate about it. Absolutely. And, and my guest today has been Michael Azarad. The book is The Amplified Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. And I just want to compliment you. I think that the first edition of the book was obviously, you know, a classic that did reveal Kurt Cobain and, and the inner workings of Nirvana to the world for the first time. But the Amplified edition to me takes it to a whole new level. And, and you know, my favorite rock book of all time is Stanley Booth's True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, which is this classic new journalism story of a journalist trying to tell the story of this rock band and what it's like to look into the abyss and and the abyss looks back into you and uh so just congratulations michael i think i think you've really put something special together and thanks so much for coming on the show oh thanks for having me natives it was a gas follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let Thursday, Nate will return with another Let It Roll Nightmare from the Vaults. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Pantheon.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.